Welcome to Inspiration Rising. My name is David Trotter. I'm your host, and we're here to inspire you to rise up in your life, love, and leadership. Today, I want to introduce you to Deirdre Fitzpatrick, the longest-running morning news anchor in the nation. She's been at KCR3 NBC in Sacramento, California for over 20 years. She's an Emmy Award-winning journalist in reporting, anchoring, and writing, and she's covered the last 10 Olympic Games. Now, at the time of this recording, she's run 21 marathons, seven 50K ultra runs, and two Ironmans. In this episode, you're going to learn how she's developed a high level of resilience, what Olympic athletes inspire her with their level of resilience, how Deirdre handles being in the public eye at least five days a week, and all about the Dying to Ask podcast that she hosts as well. Now, by the way, you may hear her hair rubbing against the mic just a bit. That's one of the challenges of podcast recording, of course, but I think you'll be drawn in by her words immediately. So let's jump into my conversation with Deirdre Fitzpatrick. Well, Deirdre, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, David, I'm thrilled to. Thanks for having me on. So I love your bio. It starts out with just three short, simple sentences. It's I've never actually read a bio like it. It just says 2.15 a.m. I do it myself, which explains a lot, and coffee by the pot. Yeah. Which actually rhymes, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> it was unintentional, I promise. So what are the questions that go along with those three answers? So the questions are, what time do you get up? Who does your hair and makeup? And how do you work the weird hours that you work? <laughs> those are the three. That's the way I've lived for, you know, the better part of 20 years now. I cannot believe 2.15 a.m. What time? I thought I went to bed at maybe 8.30 or something like that, 9 o'clock, because I want eight to nine hours sleep every night. But what time do you go to bed? So I go to bed anywhere from eight to nine. I have two kids. I have a 13-year-old and a nine-year-old and uh, they have homework and this thing called Common Core <laughs> oh, yeah. that requires a lot of Googling on a parent's part. And so it's funny, like over the years, I really found that like the needs of my kids as they got older, I just thought it would get easier. And I was so wrong. <laughs> Their needs just change. And they really need you to be engaged and be able to interact in a coherent manner at that hour. So between eight and nine, but you know, my kids, they only know our life like this because mommy has always left in the middle of the night because that lets me come home at lunchtime to be there in the afternoon. So they don't know that some parents are like around a lot more during those hours. So right, they're, right. they're pretty good about it and they know not to come in. Like they tuck me in at this point and that's kind of nice. <laughs> that's awesome. So as one of the longest running morning news anchors in the nation, and I tried to do some Google searching, I can't find one that's longer. Uh, Why do you keep doing this? I mean, this, it, it is a little like masochistic to get up bit. at that early hour, but why, why has this kept you going? You know, um, I, I went to this shift kind of kicking and screaming. I, I ended up in Sacramento 21 years ago, kind of by accident. I had no intention of ever staying here. I was going to come in for like a year, year and a half, and then, you know, move on. And I had other, other things I wanted to do. And about two years in, the then vice president of our company, a guy named Fred Young, pulled me into a meeting and he said, I hear that you have turned down the morning weekday morning anchor job three times. And that was true. I said, yep, sure have. And I was so young and I was very matter of fact. I said, oh yeah, absolutely. Well, why? Why would you not want this job? 
And I said, oh, I have no interest in that job. And I just, I, I was really honest with him, which has been like the good thing and the bad thing about me as an employee over the years is I'm, I'm pretty honest with you. I don't have the energy to try to keep up a charade. So sure. I just said, Fred, I, I just, I don't want to work those hours. And, you know, morning's not like, that's not where the, the really good people go. They're always on nights or they're doing other things. And like morning's where you like the beginners go or whatever. And he said to me, he said, morning is where our business is going because people aren't going to stay up this late and our lifestyles are changing. And if you trust me, it will be the best thing you ever did. And I thought he was crazy. And I, I truly, David, I really had turned this job down three times. And it was almost like turning someone down to go to the homecoming dance. They just want to date you that much more. You know? <laughs> and I just looked at him and I thought, well, I don't know. I don't have anything better going today. I said, okay, I'll do it. And he walked out of that meeting and he looked at some of our managers here at KCRA where I work, NBC in Sacramento. And he said, yep, she's doing it. <laughs> and the funny thing is he was 100% correct. And you know, the very young me at that point never would have guessed that that was the direction to go, but it ended up being the best thing ever. And you know, sometimes you just, sometimes you have to go with your gut and you have to go with somebody who you know, has maybe your best interest and see something in you. And he was right because right around that time is when, especially on the West coast, our lifestyles completely changed. Our commutes got longer. People got up earlier that people started discovering that like, you can be really productive in the morning if you get up and, and you need to know something before you leave the house. So that's why morning news became really important. And then for me personally, I was kind of rewarded for that with an opportunity to go represent our company at the Olympics. And so I went off on this Olympic assignment representing Hearst Television, my company, for 30 stations. And that was 20 years ago at the 2000 Sydney Olympics. And I have now gone to 10 Olympics. So it's also carved out this unusual niche for me as a reporter that fulfilled some things just intellectually that I needed and maybe adrenaline-wise that I needed that allowed me to do really big things but still stay in a smaller place with a really sustainable life. And in my industry, that's a very tough thing to do. And I think it's a tough thing for a woman to do. It's that whole concept of having it all, which, um, yeah, you can have it all, just not like right now, but it allowed me to do big things, but still have like a really nice life. And so that's, that's how I ended up here. And that's why I stayed. That's amazing. Um, I think about this kind of concept of resilience. And if I was talking to a mom of two boys, we could easily talk about resilience. If I was interviewing just a news anchor, we could talk about resilience. But then if I'm trying to understand what would drive someone to run 21 marathons, 750K <laughs> ultra runs, and two Ironmans, which I'm not sure why they call it man, Iron person, <laughs> we could talk about resilience. But you've done all three. Like that is kind of, you know, and that's not the totality of your life, but those are three big things in your mm -hmm. life. How have you developed a level of resilience in your own life? So I think part of it is that in covering the Olympics, I found myself surrounded by people who do big things. I was telling the stories of people who had basically worked for a decade for one day, because that's what the Olympics is. It's every four years. And in most of the sports, it's one day. Sometimes it's 90 seconds and the whole totality of everything you've worked for comes down to that one moment. So when you are around people like that, you start to think that like you can be like that too. <laughs> so I remember interviewing McKeeley Jones, who is an Australian triathlete who was represented bike wise um, by a bike builder named Jim Felt. 
And uh, I had gone and done a story with her and she was just this like remarkable triathlete, incredibly positive. And they invited me, I was single at the time, and they invited me to Thanksgiving <laughs> and she happened to be staying with them. So I went along. I'm like, wow, why not? So I went to Thanksgiving and I sat there and had Thanksgiving dinner and talked to her and like found out what she did. And the next thing I'm like, well, I can do that. And, and it turned out I could. Now I can't win it, but I can do it. So it's that idea of like, can I hang in there and can I suffer long enough to be able to get to that goal and to form a goal that's reasonable for you. Now, for me, winning an Ironman, winning a triathlon, winning a marathon is highly unlikely, <laughs> very unlikely. But for me to get to the start line is a victory. To get some training in is a victory. To get to the finish line is a victory. To not get injured is a victory. To feel my head clear of stress and to feel a calm that I get, that I know through doing some of these endurance sports is a huge victory. And it makes me a better wife, a better mom, a better employee, a better friend, just like a better person in general. So I love that concept of when you put yourself into, I call it the voluntary suffer fest. When you put yourself into a suffer fest and then you pull it off, it's awesome. And then when someone else puts you into a suffer fest later or when life in general throws something at you, you can draw back to that time dig deep and say, well, I know that in September of 2013, I did Ironman Tahoe and it was 26 degrees at the start. My fingers froze and I finished with 56 minutes to spare. <laughs> you know, like you can go back and it, it helps you take on other challenges later that maybe aren't as easy in a different kind of way. You, it lets you kind of draw into the strength. So, and obviously there's something a little wrong with me <laughs> that I like these things, obviously. I mean, it, it is, there is a little bit of an addiction there, but I think compared to the way I could be spending my time, it's not so bad. I assume you ran in high school or something before this, but did you start competing at this level in terms of marathons after you started covering the Olympics? No, I actually, I ran in high school for, for part of a semester and I was as a freshman, very fast. And because of that, I got put onto a relay team with senior girls. And when you're a freshman and you're hanging out with senior girls, it's super uncomfortable. And they were kind of rough on me, or at least that's the way my 14 year old brain looked at it. So the week before the state championships, I quit. Oh my goodness. And my parents, because I lived 45 minutes away from my school, were thrilled that they didn't have to figure out a way to get me home from school. So they didn't like push me to stay in it. There was none of that in the Fitzpatrick house. So that was my only experience with running when I was in high school. Um, and then actually I got into like running more distances beyond just like trying to stay in shape when I was in my first job, which was in Des Moines, Iowa. And I did a public affairs show and I had interviewed somebody from the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society about team and training, which was one of the first marathon training programs for, um, to raise fundraising money for a, a charity. It's really how all, all those fundraising programs got started. And so at the end of the interview, the people were like, we dare you to come run a marathon with us. And I said, oh, sure. Yeah, of course. I'll take on that dare. I, it was not serious at all. Sure. <laughs> We, you know, the camera went off and they said, okay, great. Well, we meet Saturday morning. What are you talking about? I said, well, you said you'd do it. Like, oh, uh, yeah. that was on camera. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't really think you meant it. And, um, that was the first marathon I ran. So I did wow. it. I did it. And then, you know, it's, it's funny. Like, you know, I remember the, the night before I ran, it was in Toronto. I was talking to my parents. My parents were not on board with this at all. They thought it was ridiculous. And my father said, uh, 
He goes, well, you know, people, this is, this is how encouragement was in my house. <laughs> it's very Irish too. So don't, don't take this the wrong way. But I remember my father got on the phone and he said, you know, people die doing these things. <laughs> now I just finished fundraising all this money for leukemia. So I said, well, you know, some people may live because of the money that I helped raise. That's awesome. And he said, okay, well just call me when you're done. That's and, great. and, you know, yeah, just ironically, uh, many, many years later, my father was diagnosed with leukemia. Wow. And he did pass away from it. Wow. So uh, the, the irony was not lost in me. And I did go on to, to fundraise for leukemia and lymphoma for many years. And they do amazing work. But it's, just, it's funny how, you know, you look at these things that happened in your life 10, 20, sometimes 30 years ago. And they always come back, don't they? And, and you know, yeah, if, you're smart, yeah. if you're smart enough, you see the lesson that came out of it. And I certainly did after that. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Would you say that resilience is something that you set out to cultivate? Or is it just a byproduct of going through really challenging experiences? I think it's both. I think, I mean, I think it depends on, on the person. I mean, I think for me, I think resilience is part of the way I was raised. Um, I'm first generation American. My parents are both from Ireland. We moved around a lot when I was growing up. We moved back to Ireland at one point, back over to this country. So I changed schools a lot. And anybody, if you know anybody who was, you know, an army brat or who just for whatever reason moved a lot, when you have to start over at a new school, you learn to kind of reinvent and to maybe change the things that you didn't like at your last school. And you learn how to make friends and you learn how to, when it's hard to make friends, pretend like you don't care. And so you learn to just kind of roll with the punches really well. And then, you know, I I went into an industry that is at times very competitive and challenging and, um, and it's certainly changed over the time that I've been in it. But I think that you have to learn how to kind of survive in it too, especially as a woman. So I think a lot of that is, um, learned on the job for me, but it also is kind of a choice as well. I mean, you have to decide, um, am I going to let this beat me down or am I going to figure out how to find an opportunity in the challenge and look at it in a positive way and look at it in a way that I can get something out of this. Mm -hmm. If you start, I always look at things, no matter what the problem is, I look for the solution. Instantly. I look for what can I control rather than what can't I control. I'm a great problem. I'm a great problem solver. It's probably one of my, it's probably why I'm, I've, I've done well in say the Olympic assignments because it's nothing but problems when you're covering the Olympics. Sure, sure. You're constantly getting denied an interview or an event ran late or you, you know, you can't get a cell signal somewhere. There's always something going wrong. And that's the fun is like figuring out how to pull it off. So that's where, you know, being resilient means getting things done. So for me, that's how I have always looked at that. Mm-hmm. You said um, as a woman in your industry, it can sometimes be you know, uniquely challenging. Um, we have a, a ton of uh, female listeners. And I guess having not been in that industry, and most people are not, obviously, what are some of those unique challenges that you have been through that have caused you to draw upon that resilience? You know, um, the obvious ones, certainly it's a very, I mean, I love the journalism of what I do. I love the storytelling. Um, I hate doing my hair and makeup. (laughs) It's like the second line of my bio. I hate it. It's my least favorite part of the day. But the reality is that if I don't do it and I don't have whatever the look is, that's not distracting in some way, people aren't going to listen to me. They're not going to listen to what I'm communicating. I mean, I love the idea. I would love to think that I could roll out of bed and I could roll onto a TV news set and for four hours tell you all the stuff you need to know and you would just listen to me, but you wouldn't. 
sure, and I sure. probably wouldn't either. So there is, there is kind of that. Um, I think you need contract negotiation help. I mean, why are you still doing this? You've been there 20 (laughs) years and they can't afford someone to come in every morning for a few hundred bucks and make it happen. David, I am bringing you in. I think that would be really great. Um, I think that it's, it's a challenging career because as a single person, if you're only worrying about yourself and you're working odd hours, whether it's the early hours like I do, or you're working late hours, which is the flip of what I do, where you come in at three o'clock and you're there till midnight. Um, it doesn't matter when it's just you, you can work your life around. But when you start to introduce people into your life in adulthood, like a spouse, um, and you try to nurture those relationships. And then when you bring children in the mix, it becomes very complicated. And it's similar to somebody who maybe works in emergency room shift, whether you're a nurse or a doctor and you're doing those kinds of shifts. There are some jobs, it's just a little bit more challenging. Um, the world doesn't revolve on getting up at 2.15 and being off at noon. It just doesn't. So like school meetings take place at seven or eight o'clock at night. And you know, that's just like one of the things. So it has a very high burnout rate for a lot of people. That's why it's, it's very unusual that I have stayed in this shift. And then I've truthfully, I've thought to stay in this shift because for me as a parent, what I've discovered is for me and my family situation, this is actually quite perfect. Mm -hmm. And most days it's pretty good. Like nine is out of 10. Things are awesome. That Mm -hmm. 10th day is a bear, but everybody has those days, no matter what the job is. Before we continue the conversation, I want to ask you for a quick favor. Will you subscribe to the Inspiration Rising podcast on the iTunes podcast app on your phone? Now, it's also available wherever you listen to podcasts. All you have to do is search for Inspiration Rising. Click subscribe. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Why? So you won't miss a single inspiring episode. We search for the most inspiring guests to help you rise up in your life, love, and leadership. And you don't want to miss out. So subscribe and then leave a quick review. Click some stars, preferably five, and leave a sentence telling me what you enjoyed the most. All right, let's jump back in to the conversation. You talked about um, some of the people that you've met covering the Olympics, which I I can't even imagine that you've covered 10 Olympics. That is in incredible. Supposedly. Uh, and, and you know, what's funny about that is I actually have covered those Olympics with the same person. So my partner is a guy named Mike Domalog, a photographer, and we have actually gone to all 10 of these Olympics together. And supposedly we are the longest running NBC Olympic photographer reporter team. Allegedly. That's great. That's, great. That's so good. <laughs> Allegedly. But you know, it's the value of having like a really good partner, but yeah, we've had amazing adventures all over the world. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So um, give me some examples, maybe one or two of incredible examples of resilience, people that you think of out of those 10 Olympics. Okay. You know, we see the stories on TV, but you have a different perspective being right there, watching them, interviewing them face to face. Who are some people that come to your mind as examples of, of resilience? So let's see. Um, I mean, the obvious one that most people would say is Lindsey Vaughn. Lindsey Vaughn's amazing. Lindsey Vaughn is like the bionic woman. I don't know if there are any like real body parts in those knees at this point. (laughs) You know, she's amazing. But here's what I'd say about a big name like that. They have a lot of people behind them. There's an army making sure she gets to the mountain and there's an army taking care of her and, and there's money. And that makes it a lot easier. To me, the really resilient people are the ones who didn't make any money. Because the idea that you would give that much of your life up for that, like I was saying, that a decade of your life 
for one day <laughs> for 90 seconds is crazy. And probably the most recent example I would think of is, um, do you remember the cross-country skiers from Pyeongchang, the, the women's team that won gold? And the cross-country team had not, it's Jesse Diggins and Keegan Randall. Okay. They had not won a medal at the Olympics in 42 years. Wow. 42 years, okay. not only did they win, they won by like 0.19 seconds and they won gold after 42 years. Yeah, and so yeah. to me, like that's not only resilience for those individuals who weren't even alive when this all started, <laughs> the drought started, but for a sport, like who gets into a sport where the chances are you are probably never going to win sure, when sure. you go up against the best of the world. So I find things like that just incredibly rewarding because at the end of the day, they're not walking away from that or skiing away from that as millionaires. Mm -hmm. They're not. They're not making the big money that Lindsey Vaughn gets just to show up at the hill. So to me, that's resilience mm -hmm. because they have to figure out a way to support themselves and to um, try to fit in school and then to train and to be the best that they can without having all the advantages that so many other people get. Mm -hmm. You have, you said you have two kids, 13 and 10, I believe you said, mm -hmm. how, how do you try to cultivate resilience in their life? I, my kids are 19 and 16. So I've, you know, lived through those, those years. They're really fun years and really challenging years. Yeah. They're fun until they're not. Aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> how do you, how are you as a parent seeking to cultivate resilience in them? I think that's such a hard question these days because I think especially, and there's a little bit of a gap between my kids and your kids, kids are very catered to these days. I mean, if you were fortunate enough to have um, two parents with good jobs and opportunity, it, sh it should make you work harder, but a lot of times it doesn't for whatever reason. And I, I really feel, and this is probably the way I was raised, that my greatest goal with my boys is to make sure that they know that no one owes them anything. No one. My expectation is that they will work harder than other people, that they will work harder than they think that they ever could, that they'll have high expectations for themselves. And um, I, within reason, try to make sure that they know how to empower themselves. I'll give you an example. Like, you probably remember this. You get the call from school. Uh, hey, mom, I forgot my backpack. <laughs> or I oh, yeah. forgot this homework. And, you know, every once in a while, my kids, they, they know better than to call me at work, but they'll go, oh, I forgot my, I forgot my stuff, my, my assignment. And I'll be like, oh yeah, that's, that's unfortunate. Yeah. Let me just step out from in front of the camera and get that. <laughs> yeah. And that's, you're, you're not going to bring it, are you? I'm like, no, I'm not, but I'm pretty sure you won't forget it the next time. You know, so my suggestion to you is you go and you're sincere to the teacher mm -hmm. and you explain what happened. Be honest, explain what happened, offer solution. And then deal with whatever happens after that. So, you know, I really believe in, in helping them and helping cater a work ethic and, and making sure that they understand that they have a lot of opportunity, but they also have to have a lot of expectation. It's not just your parents' expectations. You have to have expectations of yourself because if you don't raise your own bar, then how do you, where are you going to go? Like you've got to constantly be raising your own bar and you have to be able to, I think, um, reward yourself or to acknowledge what you did yourself. Be proud of yourself. If you were always looking for affirmation from someone else, if you need someone to tell you you did a good job, did you really do a good job? Cause you're just waiting for them to say it and chances are they don't even really mean it. So be proud of what you did. And that's, to me, that's what's really important. I want my kids to be good people. I want them to be honest I want them to work hard, to be appreciative, 
um, and to, to know that they should do for others as well. It seems like that a quality of resilience is an internal motivation versus just the external motivation. Because the if I'm just doing something for the affirmation of others and I'm just motivated externally, I'm going to be less resilient to pull mm-hmm. myself back up when I fall versus if my motivation is coming from within, you know, the bar that I've set for myself, the value of responsibility, the value of hard work, the value of uh, my yes is a yes, my no is a no. Um, then that's coming from within me. It seems like then resilience is flowing more so than if I'm just trying to please a parent or a boss or you know somebody from the outside. 100%. And I think that that's very complicated for today's generation younger people because of things like social media, because it's very hard for them to see sometimes, I think, what's really real. <laughs> Are you doing it and pulling it off because it's a great Instagram post? Mm-hmm. Are you doing it and pulling it off because it's just the right thing to do? Mm-hmm. And um, I think that that's, they, they, they have a different element of pressure than certainly you and I did growing up. And I, I feel for them, but at the same time, I want them to do things like you said for themselves because I'm not always going to be around. Their dad's not going to always be around. They might not be surrounded by people who have their best interests. So learn to learn to find your own moral compass, know what you are comfortable with. Like at the end of every day, I ask myself, am I good with the way the day went? What could I have done better? Was I kind enough? Was I patient enough? That's probably my biggest <laughs> challenge is being patient enough. You know, like how could I have done something better? And I look for little things because for me, that's what motivates me. You know, like for example, with, with younger people that I work with, I work with a lot of younger producers. And so what I notice is a lot of them looking for um, the, not necessarily the approval, but they just want, they want some interaction. And so when you sit and go, what can I teach you? What do you want to know? Like, what do you want to do? What's your goal? It's really interesting to hear what it is that they want to do. And so, you know, I, I suppose I kind of do it in a little bit more of like a parent mode now because that's my, <laughs> that's my MO at home. But there's something really nice about saying like, I'm really good with the way I'm doing life right now. And I, it's making me happy. I feel fulfilled at the end of the day. And I feel motivated to come back in the next day too, no matter what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Obviously, physical resilience is a huge part of sports, but so is mental and emotional resilience. It may even be more important in some ways. You mentioned that we grew up in a, a, a different era. I think we're both around the same age. But how has the rise of social media impacted the way that you do your job, especially oh as gosh. somebody who's <laughs> you're in the public eye at least five yeah. days a week, and then probably the sixth and seventh day, you're in the public eye somehow. How has social media impacted? You've experienced the rise of it and now the pr- proliferation of it. Yeah, it's that, it, that's the biggest thing. With all the technology and all the changes in my industry, um, the social media component is the biggest game changer. So the best thing about my job when I started out 20-something years ago was that at the end of your workday, it was the end of the day. Like I'd already... I'd, written my story it had aired I'd anchored my show I walked out the door there was nothing else to do till the next day that was that was a really great freeing thing you didn't bring stuff home because it was done and it either worked or it didn't work now it's 24 7 and social media has had some really great things in my business I mean it it allows you to engage and have a conversation with your viewer in a different kind of way which is fantastic most of the time 
But then there is the expectation that you'll be available 24-7. And then the other thing that's interesting is that that now social media is now a ranked thing in my profession. So for example, outside my news director's office, there is a big giant digital board and there are companies that rank television. They call them television talent, which sounds a little goofy, I know. Television personalities. Um, and you are ranked by how high your engagement is. So there's this magical formula that nobody understands that, that says that these are the most popular people. And at this very minute, this person is ranked number one out of all the people within you know, a certain city. And there's a value that's now attached to that. Um, what's interesting about that is that with television, when I was starting, people kind of had an idea what they thought you were, but it was before the word authentic became like a thing within marketing and media. And so people, there were a lot of people that I worked with who appeared a certain kind of way on TV. And then you met them at the grocery store. You're like, whoa, he's a salty dude. <laughs> you know, like just a different kind of person. And social media has kind of stripped a lot of that because now people are very, everything is, everything is open for a lot of people. For me, since I've had a foot in both worlds, I have a comfort level of what I choose to share and what I choose to keep private. So there are, if you were to go onto one of my social media pages, you'd probably figure out that I love running. I love reading. Um, I like my wine sometimes, but sometimes I mean on the weekend. And I like, I like to share that kind of thing. Um, but I don't share a lot of my kids. And your dog. Yes. And my dog, I have an, an old dog. I'll share the dog. Um, but I, I kind of made a decision on like, what was my comfort level? What am I willing to share? Um, and that for me has worked. Other people share everything about themselves 24 seven. And I'll tell you, like on those ranking boards, that can work very well too. But that's a really tough, tough way to do your job. And I think it adds a whole lot of other pressures for people too. And I think it makes them post things in a very quick way sometimes that maybe you go, oh, I'm not sure that's really what you meant to say. Or is that really what you want to get out there? So you have to have your own comfort level with what you're willing to share. And this is true of any profession, I think. Um, but it is, it's weird to think about individuals being a brand versus just the company that you work for or the product that you've created. Mm -hmm. The idea of the concept of an individual as a brand is something that's definitely a much more recent phenomenon. So you said that you're kind of expected to be on call 24 seven. Is that an expectation that you sense from your company, the viewers or yourself? Help, help me understand that. Mm, well, I think it's probably all of the above. That said, I'm pretty respectful of my family time. And I find that I personally need a break from that stuff. So I don't, when I, go on vacation, it's off, completely off. I try to do the social media stuff within my work day. And then I try to pull back from home because I think it's, I think you need to mentally have some space when you get home. It's very difficult to be involved and engaged with your family. If you are constantly talking to people on Instagram, <laughs> it just is. So I think you have to learn how to put parameters on your life in order to pay attention, pay the right kind of attention to everything. If I'm at work, I'm at work. And I work hard when I'm at work. I'll give you every minute that I'm at work. And then some. The house always wins when it comes to work with me. But when I'm home, I am really conscious of being home. Am I successful all the time? Absolutely not. But I am trying to be more conscious because now that my kids are 13 and 10, I'm playing the numbers game. I'm playing the, I have five more spring breaks with the older one. 
I have four more Christmases. Like we've started doing the numbers and I don't want to miss that because I was doing something else that I'm not even going to remember in five years. Right. Right. Now that numbers game is, it's hard. It is hard. You talked about, um, uh, being in, when you're at home, you're at home. How else do you care for yourself? Because I mean, not only the time that you get up in the morning, but the adrenaline rush of all that you do, the travel, what does caring for yourself look like? Staying healthy is my big thing. You know, I'm really, um, I'm really conscious of trying to like stay healthy. So for me, it's, you know, I'm in selling a Geritol commercial, but I eat well and I exercise. (laughs) I take care of myself. Um, I take care of my brain. I read a lot. I work in television. I don't watch a lot of television and I have nothing against Real Housewives fans or anything else. Sure. But it's not my thing right now. Like I find that I need, I need like 20 minutes of quiet to settle my brain, to just escape a little bit and to kind of get everything right in my world. That's what I need. Maybe it's not what you need, but that's what I need. So I, I am, I wouldn't say I'm, I don't think I'm being selfish with that. I'm just knowing that that's what it takes right now for me to be a good wife and a good mom. And I've learned that the hard way. I have hit the wall. And I hit the wall a couple of years ago where I just was like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. And there were a lot of factors. And you know, the biggest one for me was I got to figure out how to protect sleep better. I need to figure out better ways to organize certain things. And so I reached out to mentors. I have always, I've had a couple of mentors in my career. And what I found is I not only do I need work mentors, I need some mom mentors. Hmm. I need life mentors. I need, I want to know like, how do people do things? Because chances are I can learn from them. I don't have to make the mistake to avoid the mistake. So I've reached out to people to find out how are you doing things? And I found that I had a couple of, of friends who were single moms who were the best at trying to like compartmentalize and organize and and keep things going. And I found out how they were doing things. So I started doing the very boring food prepping thing on Sunday nights. And when you know, it works, (laughs) you will eat better that way. And I started trying to get just super ultra organized. Um, and that's kind of how my family does things. We live in a, they, they revolve around my schedule and I understand and I respect that, you know, they have to be quiet by eight o'clock. So mommy can sleep. They know that, Mommy's not going to bring that homework if you forgot it. Like they, they know that stuff. So I try to make sure that they have everything that they need on the back end. And when we're on vacation, we have a week off. I take all the rules away. We stay up mm-hmm. late. We stay up late. We don't plan things. We don't do any of that food prepping. No, we go crazy. We like, we, we do a lot of like the, what probably people would consider a little bit more normal. We do that. We relax the rules and, um, you know, that's just how our family functions. And I think that's what all people have to figure out is like, what's the best, how do I do me the best way? And what works for me is not necessarily going to work for you, but maybe something you're doing is going to work for me. I want to know that. Mm -hmm. What are you reading uh, recently that you would recommend? Oh, I just read the best book. It's called Where the Crawdads Sing. It's by this woman named Delia Owens. Have you read this? I have not. It is so good. It's uh, number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And it's about this girl who grows up in the marshes of North Carolina. And she grows up basically on her own. So the concept is is about isolation and how how people grow up and how they, it's actually, it's about resilience. It's funny, but our whole thing we're talking about today and Delia Owens is, she's a great story. She's 69 years old. She is a scientist and she's written about this topic in nonfiction for years. She had this, this idea of this fiction character in her, her brain for years. She took 10 years writing this book. 
And then it comes out and it is this wild bestseller. It's being turned into a movie. She's kind of this unlikely success story, which makes her that much more intriguing. It's wonderful. It's the most lyrically written book I've read in years. Just beautiful. Very cool. Well, we'll be sure to link to that in the show notes. Where the Crawdads Sing? Where the Crawdads Sing. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Okay. Well, I know, you know, as if you don't have enough going on, you also are the host of your own podcast called Dying to Ask. And I love the image too. Your cameraman's chasing after you with a microphone is so cool. Uh, what are the, we're, when we listen, not if we listen, but when we listen <laughs> to the podcast, uh, what are some of the types of people that we'll meet? So the, the idea behind it was, um, well, first of all, I did the podcast because I, I wanted to try something new, which I think if you're, especially if you have a job where you're at the same place, sometimes it's it's hard to, people struggle being in the same job for a long time. It's very unusual to do it. And for me, what I've constantly needed is a new challenge. So I have really embraced technologies that's changed my industry because it's allowed me to do all kinds of other things. So whether it's through social media or say through podcasting, it allows you to do something a little different. It's still sort of familiar. So for podcasting, I was intrigued by this idea of how do people pull things off? Like I have a million ideas in a day. Reporters, photographers, when they go out in a car to go do a story, you spend eight hours together. That's all you do is come up with ideas. You never do any of them, (laughs) but you come up with all kinds of ideas of things you could invent or you could do. So I really wanted to know how do people go from A to B and actually pull it off? Like what's the story of how you did something? So that was the, the kind of the premise behind the show. And so we've, we've looked for people who've done interesting things. So some of our recent guests have included um, Rachel Hollis, the, the big motivational speaker right now. I mean, she's an amazing story. She used social media to, and the very raw moments of social media to kind of launch what's turned into a media empire and very deliberate in the way she talks to women and motivates them. Uh, she was a recent guest. Um, this week, we have a guy named JC Tenor, who's a member of the Texas Tenors, who's on America's Got Talent. And he tells the story of how, on a whim, he applied to the America's Got Talent with a couple of guys he knew from a construction site 10 years ago. And in one night, they went from two guys doing construction, singing on the side, to being this huge group that's now had remarkable success over 10 years. So those are the types of people. I mean, we, we kind of limited to entrepreneurs, authors, influencers, public figures, people who maybe you've heard of, but you don't really know a whole lot about them. And then for me, the beauty is that you actually get to chat for a while. You know, like we're doing right now, you know, most of my life revolves in a a story that's probably no longer than a minute and a half, probably (laughs) probably closer to a minute and 15 seconds. And here, you know, I get to have a conversation for 30 minutes, which is awesome because that's when you really get to relax and talk to someone and really find out what they're all about. And then if you're somebody like me, you get to pick their brain so you can learn their little life hack right, right. and maybe put it into your life too. That's good. That's good. Okay. So it's called Dying to Ask and Dying we'll to ask. make sure that we get uh, links to all the podcast apps where it's available. I'm sure iTunes is uh, one of the most popular. So we'll, we'll make sure people listen. Deirdre, thank you so much for sharing your life lessons. I, you, I just feel like you're a generous person. Like that's the feeling that I get by meeting you is you feel um, generous by sharing just your life and your wisdom and and your thoughts on resilience. So I appreciate your generosity. I really do. I, I appreciate hearing that. I have a little uh, wooden f- sign on my desk and it says, work hard, be kind. And those are my, those are my four words these days. <laughs> so if that came across to you, that absolutely thrills me. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed chatting with you. If you've been inspired or learned something from this episode, do yourself a favor and tell a friend. 
by sharing a learning with someone else, you'll actually be solidifying it in your own mind and heart and more likely to implement it in your own life. Tell them about our conversation and let them know that they can listen to the Inspiration Rising podcast on the iTunes podcast app on their phone. Check out our website at www.insporising.com. That's I-N-S-P-O rising.com and on all social media platforms as Inspo Rising. Now, as you go out about your day, may you be inspired to rise up in your life, love, and leadership. I'll talk to you next time.